Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 35 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 30th of September. And Leon, this week we're talking to Trevor Dietz of PBS Technology. That's right. Uh, Trevor Dutz is the CEO of PBS Technology. It's a, it's a complete barter. It's a, it's a complete exchange system and uh, electronically, and it's uh, taken the market by storm. And uh, it uh, it has a system called Barter Card. Yeah, very interesting. It is too. And you know, shopping without money. That's right. That's right. So that's uh, the shape of the future. So we're going to be talking to him. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Gakoulis, and he's going to be talking to us all about the big issues confronting the markets this week. Well, there were three. There was uh, the central banks, uh, being the Fed and the Bank of Japan. The reaction to uh, the Donald Trump-Hillary Clinton debate, which was really shaping the market. Yeah. And uh, also uh, the price of oil. Yeah, it's uh, well, nothing's happened in the discussions with Russia and the rest of them. No, uh, Saudi Arabia's last offered a compromise and uh, Iran says they don't want to accept it. But all the analysts are saying at least it's on the table and um, they're saying they're meeting in Algiers now. But they're saying we could have a resolution at the next meeting of OPEC in November, which is in two months time. Yeah, by by which time the politics might have changed a bit more and we'll still have more delays. You would expect that wouldn't you yeah they're just not not willing to um, lower production i'm sure no well there's a whole lot of other issues like middle east politics Mm, yeah that's right which are as confused as ever absolutely anyway uh let's listen to trevor deets trevor deet tell us about Bartercard. how does it work well, barter card is what they call a retail barter exchange. Um, we've been operating in this country for more than 25 years. And effectively, it's simply uh, businesses that come together under the banner of the exchange and they swap goods and services. And they do that and they get paid in a way that is denominated as trade dollars. So if you think of two examples, it might be, for example, a bike store and a radio station. And a bike store goes along to the radio station and says, look, I want $2,000 worth of advertising, but uh, I don't want to pay you cash. I'm happy to give you two bikes, okay? The bikes uh, I retail at $1,000, but, you know, realistically, they cost me to buy $500 each. Now, the radio station might say, that's fine. I'm happy to take the two bikes. I can then raffle it off. Or I can give it away as a prize. You know, it's uh, I've got spare time in the radio program to be able to run the advertisements for a month for this particular business. That works well. So that's what they call contra generally. But in retail barter or organised barter systems, there's actually a transaction that occurs. So rather than handing over physical product like bikes, what would happen there is that the bike store owner would actually pay the radio station 2,000 trade dollars. Now, the bike store owner would get those 2,000 trade dollars from businesses that are part of our network. So really, it becomes a sales channel as far as the bike store is concerned. We have more than 24,000 businesses that are involved. In example, in Australia, there's more than 12,000 businesses that are involved. So we're finding that the people will come to his bike store because he accepts barter card and his competitors do not. He does a transaction with them. It's at his marginal cost because it's new sales. It's additional sales channel for him. He's happy. He spends the trade dollars that he gets on things like advertising. Now, that month may go past. He says, okay, well, I've got another, uh, I've sold another few bikes now on barter. What do I do with that? Well, he could engage an accountant. 
to do his books. Pay him on trade. He may uh, decide to get, get his premises renovated and he pays the painter or the tiler or the carpenter. Uh, on trade. So there's a, a variety of ways to be able to spend trade. So if you think about the index in the yellow pages, it starts with um, arts and crafts and ends up at zoos and there's all these businesses in between, we've got exactly the same thing. And we do that in a digital way. So people trade more than $600 million worth each year through our, pro, our trading programs across eight countries. So it's a big business these days. Does your company sort of work the as a marriage broker in this, so to speak? Do you find the deals or do your, do your clients find the deal? To be honest, it's a combination of both. We have an online portal that the members register on and they can actually advertise the products and goods that they are selling. And any of our existing merchant base can log on to that portal, search, uh, search for a particular product or um, service that they need and get immediate responses and they can go directly to those businesses. But we do provide account managers. So each merchant that joins has a designated an account manager and each one of those account managers manages on average about 80 to 120 odd merchants. And their job is to understand what each of those businesses do, what they sell and what they buy and the frequency of same, so whether they buy something weekly, quarterly, monthly, half, yearly, or whatever, and to put together regular spends for them. So if a merchant rings up and says, look, I need to um, renovate my entire premises. I want some painting. I need some tiling. I want some carpet tiles laid. Um, I want to have some windows uh, replaced, etc. What can you find for me? So the account manager will then go out and source suppliers to actually quote on those jobs and put those deals together. They'll make the introduction. So they'll broker a transaction as such. So how do they handle, how would a company handle the the tax side of deals like that? Well, this is the good part about this. See, when you do um, contra, where I talked about where there's just a direct deal between two. There's always problems around title. There's always problems around, you know, what's taxable and what's not. And the taxation department really frowns on that sort of direct barter style of exercises. But when you do through something like a, uh, a proper barter exchange like BarterCard, everything is above board. So a trade dollar earned is assessed in exactly the same way as a cash dollar. It's revenue. So it's income and it's taxed accordingly. If you spend a trade dollar as an expense in your business, it's deductible. GS GST applies. If you pay it to yourself, FPT applies. It's treated in exactly the same way and accounted for in exactly the same way as would be cash transactions. Now, the taxation departments in every country in which we operate are actually very pleased to see that we operate in such a transparent and honest way because all we look to do in any given business out there is add about oh, 5% of the turnover of the existing business. We don't want to do much more than that. So, it's really not a huge amount that they're doing, but it's every business out there generally has some surplus capacity, and we look to fill that surplus capacity. If they earn trade, they are it's treated as revenue, and they spend it, it's a deduction. So it's a net sum game. But what it does do is it saves the cash in the business that the little business owner would have spent otherwise. BPS um, charges both buyer and seller 6.5% of the value of all barter card transactions. So you clip the ticket on the way through. Is that right? Yes. So BPS is, is short for Business Payment System. That's the listed company on the ASX. And it owns the barter card group worldwide. It owns uh, our Bucky technology, which is for 
consumers and businesses uh, to use and use as reward systems. And we own Tess, which is our software company. So uh, Bartercard, yes, in its business model, each business out there pays a small monthly and uh, monthly marketing and support fee, and they pay 6.5% on each side of the transaction. Right, okay. Now, tell us about this exciting deal that you've got with uh, Alibaba in China. <laughs> well, that's a really exciting deal because, um, as your listeners may be aware, there is a real challenge in the Chinese market where product is taken from Australia, boxed up, shipped back, uh, it is sometimes opened, diluted, repackaged in in uh, counterfeit uh, uh, packaging, etc., and then resold into the Chinese market by people who the Chinese government are not happy with. And now let me tell you, the Australian government's not happy with them either. So as part of the free trade agreement, there was an agreement between the two countries that would recognise designated, certified and trusted websites where product distributed and sold from Australia would be able to be sold through these websites in a way that the purchasers in China knew they were getting legitimate product, appropriately priced, and was fit for purpose. So what we've done with Smart Trans and Alibaba is to be able to provide a channel by which our existing merchants are now able to open a fully qualified, fully certified and government endorsed sales channel into the Chinese market. Now, Alibaba has the two sites. It's Alibaba and 1688. So 1688 has all the Chinese translations on it. And effectively, what we're now doing there is to be able to enable our existing merchants who are now able to go through to SmartTrans and, and Alibaba and sell their product into the Chinese market. It is delivered remotely, okay, into that China. All the taxes are paid. And importantly, that the product is delivered as an original and certified product. Now, the Chinese populace actually are seeking this way of being able to do business. They like Australian products they see australian products as being high quality and very very good value and by doing it this way it opens up a whole new channel now we're since we announced this initiation uh, this new trial we've actually got 11 businesses that we're now dealing with who are looking to do this particular channel enablement piece and more than half of those businesses were not previously associated with bps in any way, or Bartercard, they simply saw the press release around what we were doing and said, I've been trying to get into China forever. I can't find a trusted way to be able to distribute there. How do you make this work, guys? And we're now helping those businesses do that. Well, that's fantastic because you're opening uh, China up for Australian businesses and it's a way of recruiting more Australian businesses to BPS. That's fantastic. Well, we like to be able to think that we're there for the small to medium enterprise. You know, that's the DNA of our business. And let's face it, you know, the average SME out there has real challenges being able to find ways to market, not only within their existing area, but also interstate and internationally. These countries are crying out for Australian product. And our SME members there currently are finding it very difficult to find those effective and trusted ways to sell into markets such as China. It is a different market into which to sell. There are a lot of traditions and customs and ways of doing business there, which if you know how you do how to do it well, 
can be very, very successful. And what we've been able to do with the likes of, for example, one of our customers here is a company by the name of More Life. Now, they produce a range of health foods, etc., which they actually found, didn't know, that were being already distributed into China. They were not aware that their product was there, but it was being sold there at highly inflated prices by people who were not actually their agents. Now, we've been able to facilitate a visitation to the Alibaba campus for the GM of More Life, and they've put together a full sales program there of the product they're going to be able to sell into the Chinese market, which is compliant with all of their legislation. And these people are now looking at uh, generating uh, new revenues in excess of $2 million a year. Well, now, that's, that's an exciting way to do business. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And we look forward to more news about BPS. It's been fantastic talking to you, Mr. Dutz. Thank you so much for your time. Well, we're there to help the little guy, and so are you. So we're very happy to be part of the program. Thank you. Well, Leon, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, not exactly new. I mean, people have been bartering for centuries, but uh, this is a new, a new angle on it and it seems to be working very well. Uh, this is very much about the future of money, I think. You know, you look at it and you think, well, banks, banks are under a lot of pressure, aren't they, from everywhere from the blockchain side of things to uh, being on the nose anyway. That's right. That's right. So uh, this will be very, very interesting to, to see how that develops. And now Stephen Kakoulas. Stephen Kakoulas, uh, there are three things now affecting the markets. Uh, one was uh, the central banks last week with the Fed and the Bank of Japan. The secondly was the uh, market's response to the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump debate and uh, how that affected currencies, etc. And finally, the price of oil with OPEC meeting in Algiers. I mean, what's your take on all of this? I think in the medium term, of course, it's central banks that determine how the economy goes, where the markets go inevitably, what they're going to be doing with monetary policy, uh, the rejigging, I suppose we could call it, of policy in Japan last week where they've sort of given a target for the yield curve rather than specific interest rates. Obviously, they've kept negative interest rates at the very short end of the yield curve, but they're wanting to grow their economies, wanting to expand yeah, the big question, of course, for global markets is the US and the Federal Reserve. They've signalled an intent to, again, like they have for probably six months, that they want to hike interest rates, but they haven't quite got the you know, compelling evidence to do so without disrupting the markets and disrupting the economy. So they're going to be on hold. It's still very stimulatory measures. But that said, at the first hint that they get, you know, a, a, a nice growth number or the inflation rate ticks up a little bit more or the unemployment rate ticks down a little bit more, they'll go. So the markets are watching the Fed, the Bank of Japan, of course, the European Central Bank to see you know, whether there's going to be any stimulus in some of those uh, countries, but more importantly, arguably, is what happens in the US. When will they have the courage to hike rates? And of course, the market's betting on about a 50% probability that it'll be in December, you know, well after the presidential election. And, of course, uh, Donald Trump has signalled that Janet Yellen uh, is in for the long jump if he comes in as president. Oh, he signalled lots of things. Leon, I'm not quite sure what to say. Um, <laughs> Analysing Donald Trump's promises or commitments or ideas, other than to say they're erratic. And uh, you, you're just left wondering that if he does win, how will it pan out? What will actually happen in terms of tax policy? You know, he said he's going to be cutting uh, taxes, but then repair the budget. There's a lot of inconsistencies there. So if he were to get across the line uh, in November, it, it's going to be a fascinating 
um, manifestation of the policy reform. I think that yeah, obviously the markets would be very, very disrupted if that were to occur. There'd be a lot of volatility, a lot of uh, just uncertainty as he you know, maybe, well, he has to come up with a more articulate policy framework than the one that he's outlined so far. And then, of course, some of the things that are very, very hard to be sure about, like global trade issues or the geopolitical issues with the US being the dominant global power in a military sense. How is that going to pan out? Is he going to bring all the troops home? What does that mean for the rest of the world? So he's the big question mark. He's the big uncertainty. And inevitably, there'll be a lot of volatility were he to win. And Clinton, who's got a more measured approach, obviously, she's been known in public life and public policy for, for decades. And without getting into the nitty gritty of her policy agenda, it's going to be more of the same, a more conventional approach to budget and tax and international relations and these sorts of things. So in a sense, a Hillary Clinton win would be calm, more measured. A Trump win would be hugely volatile and very uncertain until we actually saw the colour of what he's actually doing. The market is obviously preferring a Hillary Clinton win, and I would say that if Trump were to win, you could expect the gold price would soar and as would the Japanese yen, which is regarded as a safe haven. Indeed, that would be two consequences. And I think just the good old volatility, the VIX measure, which measures a range of market volatility, that that would inevitably rise strongly too. You would probably be seeing you know, share markets up and down a good 1% or 2% uh, as people in the markets reacted to his pronouncements on, on tax policy, on foreign affairs issues, on trade flows, all these things that are that he's got this um, uh, radical, I would call it, approach and one that's just creating a lot of uncertainty. So you're quite right that the market does or strongly prefers a Clinton win because it's, in a sense, the devil you know, that she's got a she's got an agenda that's at least costed, it's at least articulate. <laughs> um, you know, whether you agree or disagree with all the minutiae of the policies, it's a policy framework that you know, really wouldn't derail or do anything sinister to the US economy. And I guess that's why the markets would clearly, clearly prefer a Clinton win rather than a Trump win. Now, uh, I was watching the debate yesterday while sitting there at the TV with my laptop and I was monitoring the markets and I saw the yen actually eased back, as did the gold price and the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar, and for that matter, the Mexican peso (laughs) soared. And that would indicate that the market had confirmed that uh, Trump had lost the debate and Hillary Clinton was a step closer to becoming US president. I was also watching US stock futures because they were trading overnight US time and uh, they were creeping up. Look, you wouldn't say it was a strong performance, but you know, as the debate went on and it was clear that Clinton had a more measured approach to policy and the way that she would handle the role as president than, than Trump would, the, the market was just taking... You're just that deep breath and sort of saying, well, okay, she's probably doing well in this debate. She's probably going to win. The market uncertainty or the market volatility that we were just discussing is less likely to occur with a Clinton win. And and the markets speak with their feet. You know, it's their money. It's it's the best way of actually judging. So you have these various opinion polls that he won, she won, whatever the case may be. But the best poll, I guess, is where people put their money. And the markets are certainly the biggest place where people put their money, stocks, bonds, currencies and the like. Having said that, we are in the middle of a booming market. You know, it's it's going gangbusters. Debt is soaring. Chances are whoever will be elected president will have to deal with a correction in the market and uh, debt issues. Would that be right? The short answer is yes. Whoever wins still has to tackle the problem of the 
US government debt, which is you know approaching 100% of GDP. It's very high, even though it's stabilised in the last few years as the albeit moderate rate of economic growth in the US has occurred and unemployment's fallen. You know, the, the tax collections have recovered with the economy. The budget deficit's shrunk and debt's basically stabilised, but it's stabilised at an incredibly high level. So there needs to be a discussion. It's a little bit like the exit strategy from the Fed on its uh, balance sheet and its quantitative easing. How does it let those bonds go back into the market? On fiscal policy, it's the question. We're also confronting it here in Australia, by the way. How do we, how do we, you know, narrow the budget deficit or, you know, heaven forbid, return to surplus without hurting the economy? Because, you know, both the US and Australia, while they're growing, they're doing okay. You know, the, the numbers aren't aren't bad, but they're certainly not really strong enough to say that, well, we need to tighten fiscal policy because if you're having government demand cut either through tax hikes or spending cuts, you risk doing what happened in large parts of Europe of tightening fiscal policy into a weak economy. And we know what happened there. It was a deep and nasty recession. That's the balancing act that the new president will have to confront. How do they address the government debt and deficit issue without derailing economic growth? Now, the final issue, of course, is about the oil price and uh, the OPEC countries are having an informal meeting in Algiers at the moment and there's talk at the moment of a compromise from Saudi Arabia. I mean, what do you see happening there? There's clearly a lot of pressure. The the collapse in the oil price over the last couple of years, and even though it's it's rallied a little bit in the last six months, yeah, the start of the year, it got below 30 US dollars a barrel. It's now mid 40s, very volatile again, but roughly mid 40 40 US dollars a a barrel. There's there's pressure on the oil producers. They're they're hurting under this. Even though they're still making some money, they're low-cost producers. It's nonetheless eroding their fiscal position, it's eroding the national well-being of the oil producers. So clearly they would love the price to rise. (laughs) Of course, it goes without saying, I I should hope. But the question is, how do they achieve it? At a time when demand for oil is tapering off, partly because the global economy is only recording moderate growth, but we've also had this surge in non-oil generation, so renewables, sun, wind, these sorts of things, and more efficient uh, use of oil. So they've got this dilemma that you would imagine that over the next couple of decades, demand for oil will continue to moderate as renewables become more and more efficient, cheap, and more popular, I suppose is the word. Um, but then yeah, they, they want to keep prices relatively elevated. They want to churn out the volume. And not one country is prepared to say, look, let's all do it together or I'll do it. Because, of course, if they do it, the other countries get the benefit of the, uh, of the higher prices. So reaching consensus at the low point, which we have now in terms of prices or near the low point in this particular cycle, is really difficult. So my, my, my hunch is that we, we're not going to see oil prices do much over the next little while. If anything, we're probably more inclined to see them fall than rise, simply because the global economy, as I mentioned, is subdued and we're moving rapidly away from oil as a source of our energy. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? You know, it's it's very, very volatile, extremely volatile, and uh, we just don't know where it's going to end uh, with, the, with the central banks. Uh, I mean, how much more can they do? It's time, I think, for the governments to step in with some uh, fiscal policy, meaning taxation and spending. God knows what's going to happen with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 
anything's possible there. And uh, at the same time, um, you've got the issues about oil. Yeah, exactly right. I think the banks are going to have to start lifting interest rates uh, somewhere, I and mean, they can't go any further down. The issue is that uh, the the banks are starting to realise that uh, interest rates have very limited impact. Yeah, that's right. You know, the thing isn't working. You've got no interest in no interest income for millions of people, and uh, that's slowing everything down apart from the rest of it. Absolutely, yes. Anyway, Leon, let's uh, deal with the news. What do you got? Well, Gary, for a start, private indicators for September from business confidence to manufacturing data show that China's economy is now growing stronger. The good readings in August have continued with private gauges for factory activity now at their strongest level in two years. Standard Chartered PLC small and medium enterprises confidence index increased to 56 this month from 54.9 in August. And despite weak investment, sales and production seem to have recovered from weather weather-related disruptions. The China Satellite Manufacturing Index has risen to 50.2 in the first weeks of September, the first reading above 50 since November, and of course readings above 50 indicate expansion. And business confidence has risen too. The Market News International China's business sentiment indicated based on a survey of executives of companies listed on the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges has now reached a 13-month high of 55.8. And that's pretty good, Gary. It is, but there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? I mean, you know, massive debt, the rising risk of bad debts in China. Well, yeah. indeed, indeed, because the International Monetary Fund has warned that China's debt fueled growth and struggle to bring house prices under control could bring contagion to global markets. Uh, the IMF said global stock prices, debt markets and currencies could be hit hard because of China's financial links with the global economy and key trading partners like Australia would be particularly affected. And the IMF said China's rising debt poses a risk in the long term because of its large highly leveraged and interconnected financial system. It said China needs to overhaul its financial regime to reduce, to reduce possible spillovers onto the rest of the world. Now, of course, in March, Premier Li Keqing announced the Communist Party was committed to doubling the size of the economy between 2010-2020, which would require a growth rate of around 6.5%. And as a result, loans are being pumped into China's economy and it's grown this year at an annual rate of 13%. And the IMF said credit growth had to be kept in check and that means allowing weak companies to fail, getting the country's banks to recognise bad debts and bringing controls for the poorly regulated shadow banking sector. Yeah, bad. the bad debt problem is a serious one, as the IMF points out. And yeah, meanwhile, the global economy is pretty soft. We're not sure of the state of China's domestic economy. And uh, you know, a drop in employment due to high rate of company failures have political effect in uh, China as well. That's right. That's right. And I mean, it has massive, massive implications. Of course, it's got massive implications for Australia too. And Scott Morrison was on uh, Sky News this week saying Australia has five years to get its budget together before these uh, ramifications of Chinese debts come to hit us. Yeah, that's right. A very, a very sage warning, I think. And anyway, to another interesting piece of news is that markets slipped this week ahead of the first US presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And Citigroup says the odds of a Trump victory over Clinton would increase volatility in bullion and foreign exchange market. And that means gold is in for some wild swings over the next seven weeks in the lead up to the elections. And I watched the debate, Gary, and the currency markets definitely gave it to Clinton. And after a while, when Trump was being particularly bombastic, the Mexican peso started climbing. The Aussie and Canadian dollar also started 
start appreciating relative to the US dollar and the yen, which is a safe haven currency when people are nervous, eased back. And the view in the market is that Trump with his America first policies would be bad for trade particularly for Mexico and Canada. So the appreciation of these currencies is telling us something. A Trump presidency would be good for the yen and gold traders. And I can tell you now that traders were sitting at their Bloomberg ter- terminals buying the peso, the Canadian dollar and the Aussie, Gary. Especially the peso. That's right. That's right. And he hasn't even built the wall. So no. <laughs> so the market's thinking Clinton's in with a chance. However, putting aside their personalities and policy proposals, I reckon, Gary, it will not matter who the next president is, is, it is when it comes to where the markets goes. And we're in the second longest bull run market of all time. And as we approach the eight year of this economic expansion, the odds are high that whoever the next president did, they'll preside over a recession, a bear market and rising debts and deficits. Yeah, that's pretty well said in concrete. Now, one of the mysteries, of course, is that uh, most of the commentary on the debate has been by what you might call the traditional analysts. And whether or not they've got a finger on the kind of people who are supporting Trump is a good question. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, so that will be fascinating to watch. Now to Australia and the heat has been on major Australian companies such as AGL, Telstra, Woolworths and Origin over bonuses paid to chief executive officers as the annual shareholder meeting season kicks off this week. And proxy firms advising super funds and shareholders which way to vote have singled out companies over the bonuses paid for non-financial targets which are impossible to measure. And proxy firm ISS says well-paid CEOs are now getting bonuses for meeting what it calls softball human resources targets. And these targets include things like team effectiveness, individual effectiveness, strategic effectiveness, and service experience. I mean, how the hell do you manage that? I mean, Telstra, for example, has introduced bonus based on a new service experience index. And the CBA has changed its bonus plan to 50% non-financial targets. So the CBA's new targets are 25% for diversity, inclusion, sustainability, and culture another 25% for customer satisfaction. I mean, how the hell do you measure that? Of course, it means every time you call up, say, Telstra or whatnot, you're asked to do a survey, and most of the time you don't even think about if you do it. And also, proxy firms are taking issue with companies stripping out one-off or unusual items and relying on what they call underlying profits to calculate executive bonuses. Uh, For example, yesterday there was a shareholders voted against the remuneration report of AGL, something like 37% voted against it, because they had hid $700 million of write-downs in their remuneration report to give their CEO a hefty pay. You know, that sort of shenanigan is uh, bound, bound to turn people off. And if AGL cops it again at 25% disapproval, the board will spill. That's right. Anyway, following strong pressure from the farming and tourism industry, the government has backed down on its backpacker tax proposal. And under the new plan, the tax rate has been cut from 32.5% between income levels of zero and 80,000 from January to 19% on earnings up to 37,000. And the higher tax would have to uh, would have netted the government, of course, more than $500 million. And to recoup some of the money, the passenger movement charge, that is for people leaving the country, will be increased by $5. And that charge was introduced in 1995 and is now set at 55 bucks. And the changes were put to Cabinet by the Treasurer Scott Morrison and agreed to by the Agricultural Minister Barnaby Joyce. And as part of the package, Tourism Australia will have a $10 million global youth targeted advertising campaign to attract working holiday markers. And the backpackers tax had come under a lot of fire from the nationals and country liberals and the change is significant backdown for the government, which had proposed a tax in the 2015 budget. And the issue had created serious divisions inside the government. And of course, the issue is uh, 
is it too late? Because backpackers are really important part of the rural economy, Gary. They make up something like 25% of the uh, workforce uh, every year in the country. Well, that's right. And, and what would happen to, uh, say, the supply of apples, peaches and things like that if you didn't have these backpackers coming in and doing all the picking? Now, another interesting piece of news is that SAI Global has said yes to a $1.08 billion takeover by private equity. Bearing Asia Private Equity Fund is going to acquire it, and the deal offers $4.75 a share. It's the largest private equity takeover in the country so far, and it's a significant premium on the $400 million price that SAI Global was looking at earlier in the year when it puts its insurance business on the market. Now, uh, the other big story uh, around the week is uh, the future of Hazelwood, and uh, there's been speculation uh, that it's going to close down, that the Hazelwood's majority owner, Angie of France, had flagged a shutdown in May and The Age reported over the weekend the company's board will decide the issue next month with the closure as early as April on the cards. Now the issue is that the imminent decisions on the future of Alcoa's Portland aluminium spelter, which is a customer of Hazelwood, could accelerate the closure of Australia's dirtiest power station and hurt AGL energy in the long run. Hazelwood's pretty much past its use-by date anyway, and it's it's filthy as a polluter. That's right. And I would say that uh, Portland's closure would increase the likelihood that Hazelwood would close, and that would make the national electricity market more volatile, and that's particularly bad with South Australia this week being cast into darkness. They, they were hit with all these storms. That's right, and you can't run a wind turbine if you've got a 100-knot wind blowing on it. You've got to stop them. Well, I think what's happened in South Australia has enormous implications for Australia as we move from fossil fuels to renewables. Yeah, and but we have to make that transition. There's no doubt of that. I mean, you just can't have all this pollution and uh, they become uneconomic anyway. Who's going to build another coal-fired station? That's right, that's right. Now, uh, other interesting piece of news is that Flight Centre is expanding into Europe. It snapped up the corporate business of Europe online agency O-D-I-G-E-O, O-D-G-E-O, for an undisclosed sum, giving it a presence in five countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland and Germany. As part of the deal, Flight Centre has also acquired a proprietary online booking tool, which it says could be rolled out elsewhere in Europe as part of a lower-cost corporate uh, travel offering. And the acquisition is part of Flight Centre's strategy of creating a global footprint. The company expanded to Ireland in May 2014, the Netherlands in March this year. It's also made acquisitions in Malaysia, Hong Kong and Mexico in the 2015-2016 financial year. And Flight Centre Managing Director director said that Graham Turner says the company is fast-tracking growth in the corporate travel sector. But uh, obviously, uh, they are really expanding. Finally, Gary, Rio Tinto has launched a bond-buying program to reduce its debt by uh, $3 billion US dollars. It's issued a redemption notice for about $1.5 billion of its 2017-2018 US dollar-denominated notes. It has also commenced cash tender offers to purchase up to approximately $1.5 billion of its 2019 2020, 2021 and 2022 US dollar denominated notes and the debt buyback comes at a time when miners are reducing their borrowing to deal with the downturn in commodity prices which is forcing them to slash dividends, sell assets and curb their spending. It also follows Rio Tinto's successful $4 billion cash tender early offer this year and it's the company's third buyback this year and Rio has a gearing of 23%, cut its net debt by 6% to $12.9 billion in the first half of 2016. So they're really, really focusing hard on reducing their debt and that's it for this week Gary and uh, next week we've got a, uh, a great interview with Sean Senvertner from mydeal.com.au very interesting company that it's uh, you know part of the new trade in uh, deals and trading and uh, the economy generally 
And uh, that's it from us for this week. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter at uh, TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to talk to you next week.